Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, and the title of my message this morning is Praying with Persistence. I don't think I've ever read a book on prayer or heard a sermon on prayer or a series on prayer that at one time or another didn't address the issue of persistence. But I've also noticed that some who speak on the subject of persistence in prayer often give the wrong reasoning for the persistence needed within our prayer lives. The text that we find persistence instructed within is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And in these books on prayer, sermons on prayer, or series on prayer, we hear about the necessity of persistence. Again, though, they often then trail off into the reasoning why for that persistence, and they miss the mark sometimes um, very much so. So I want to clarify for you this morning why it is necessary for us to be persistent in our prayer and not to lose heart. And I believe we find the answer to this in this parable, which is a different method of teaching. It is a story in which Jesus uses to communicate truth. And he does so in many different ways in the manner in which he uses parable, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But he has a specific reason in mind. He also has a specific objective for the prayer that is to be offered and that we shouldn't lose heart in praying for that particular subject matter. Let's begin by reading our text, and then we'll look at it more closely together. Chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to pr- always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversaries. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When we speak of persistence, we are talking about being firm or obstinate in a course of action despite the difficulty or opposition that we might face. Meaning that no matter what we face, we're going to stay the course. No matter how difficult it becomes, we are going to stay the course. We are going to stay firm And we are going to be obstinate in that firmness. We are going to stay the course. No matter what transpires. No matter what comes up. We're going to stay 
the course. The question I began with are, are you a persistent person? Just generally in life. Or do you find you give, your, you give up a little too easy? I ask myself, am I a persistent person? Are Americans still persistent people? Today we seem to be just the opposite in many ways. As soon as we encounter some type of difficulty, we seem to just want to fold like a cheap suit. I can't believe I just said that. (laughs) We don't want to seem to power through it, push through it. Often when I speak to uh, young men and they are faced with difficult circumstances, their first course of action is not to plow through it and be persistent about it. It's to retreat from it. More afraid to fail than to even try. Because the situation has grown difficult or they're experiencing opposition or resistance. I think about our nation as a whole and how it was forged into a nation and the persistence of the people out those certain moments in time when persistence was needed to break through to the other side. The greatest generation of all, they claim to be the generation that fought in World War II. Talk about persistence. And how little these men had as they were fighting abroad, and yet they did the best with what they could and fought through the opposition. They stayed on course. They didn't retreat. They were going to do all they could do to stand and power through it, muscle through it. We now ask the question about persistence when it comes to prayer. Do we power through it when we experience opposition, resistance, or delay? Or do we retreat? Or do we cease in our prayer lives? Or are we willing to power through? You know, any of us who have had young children know how persistent people can actually be. Growing up, my parents made the awful mistake when I was very young to tell my sister, who was even younger than I, that in several months we were going to be going to Disney World for the very first time. That's not something you tell a young child months in advance. Because every single day, guess what we asked if it was time to go to Disney World? Every single day, we would pester my mother and father, are we going, are we going, are we going, are we going? No, not yet. Next week? No. Next month? No. Next year? Yes. We're still saving up. And of course, we would forget all of that, and we'd go right back to it the very next day. And and finally, by the time we got there, my parents just wanted to get it over with. Fine, you've been to Disney World. Now shut up. Be quiet. Persistence is a noble characteristic and it can be used for noble means. 
pushing through, having confidence in the course of action that you find yourself within. If God sets us on a course of action, do we not know that it's the right course of action? Do we not know that it's God's will and therefore we should be persistent in it? And notice how he begins here. By telling us from the very beginning that we must be persistent in our prayer lives. Verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So we know what the story is all about. We know what the parable is meant to address. We are to pray and not lose heart. We must remain persistent in this endeavor. Pushing through, powering through even though we may face opposition or resistance. Throughout the New Testament, we have been called to be men and women of prayer. Let me just read a few verses for you. But before I do that, let me read this comment. One writes, he says, We have a choice when a crisis or hardship hits. We can either pray or we can lose heart. If you are praying, you will not lose heart. If you are losing heart, I would dare to say you are probably not praying. Because the Bible calls us to be men and women of prayer. It is a lifestyle that we cultivate as Christians. It's meant to be developed as we walk with the Lord. That prayer becomes the first resource and not the last resort in our lives. For Paul wrote in Romans 12, 12, he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be consistent or constant in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18 states, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Colossians 4, 2, Paul continues, Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in, the, in it with thanksgiving. Or the famous verse in 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18 Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And what he is speaking of is a cultivated prayer life. Meaning it's a natural aspect of our Christian life to be men and women of prayer. And doing so without losing heart. That is what this parable is asking of us. Now Jesus is going to specify what may cause us to lose heart within the parable. And within the placement of this parable within the particular book and chapter that we find it. But when we speak of losing heart, we are speaking of this, to lose one's motivation to accomplish some vital goal, to become discouraged, to give up. That is the point in which we are trying to make. He said that to them in a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not to lose heart. So we see that this parable is going to offer us that encouragement.
But before we get into a parable, we must understand what a parable is. It's a form of teaching that Jesus used consistently through the Gospels. As one wrote, he said, A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A parable differs from a fable by having a truly spiritual aim. Parables differ from myths by being absolutely truthful. They differ from proverbs by their length. They differ from allegories by being complete and by nearly always being self-interpreting. As one wrote in his book, he says a parable is a story from the everyday life used to illustrate a moral or religious truth. And one last one commented, he said, fundamentally, a parable is a pictorial comparison between something familiar and known and a spiritual truth or reality. So in this parable, God is going to, Jesus is going to try to communicate to us a spiritual truth. Now we must understand how this parable works before we can truly learn from it and grasp from it what Jesus wants us to grasp. Parables work in one of two ways often, and in most cases. They are either comparison or they are in contrast, meaning Jesus gives a comparison parable. The kingdom of God is like this, he may say, and give a comparison through the illustration. But in this particular parable, like many in Luke's gospel, we find that it's a parable of contrast, where he's giving us an example of just the opposite of what is really truly true. And in this parable, we're going to find two characters. We're going to find an unrighteous judge, an unjust judge, and a widow. And using it in contrast to truly develop and to understand our position before God and God's position towards us. Jesus will use this as a contrast. Some see it as it being the lesser to the greater giving us a lesser example to magnify the greater example that we have in God. So let us begin. In our necessity for persistence, he gives us this illustration that we may may always to pray and not to lose heart. In verse 2, he begins this illustration, this parable. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying to him, give me justice against my adversaries. And while he refused, for a while, I'm sorry, he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this woman keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. To truly appreciate this parable, we have to understand the characters within it. We have to go back in time to truly understand what these characters meant at that time. Let's begin with the widow. For I believe the widow is in contrast to God's elect that we read here later in verse 7. God's elect, you and I chosen ones from the foundations of the earth. And this widow. Throughout the Bible, you understand that a widow has a very special place in God's heart, along with the orphan. A widow in this culture, a female widow specifically, 
was one of the most helpless demographic you could be within. It was a male-centered culture. Women had very little standing and rights within that culture. Widows were often poor without any money. God said to His people, to the Jews and to the church, that we are supposed to be responsible in taking care of widows and orphans. In fact, he warns us that if we mistreat widows and orphans, we're going to have to answer to him. They held a very special place in God's heart. Why? Because he knew how helpless they actually were. And so by him depicting the widow as the contrast to God's elect, we begin by understanding that this is what we are not. And let us go through it. She was a stranger to the judge, number one. She had no relations to the judge. The judge on a normal day would never hear her case. Women were not allowed to bring cases to court, to trial, apart from the fact that if they were mistreated themselves. They could be a witness, and then someone on their behalf, a male on their behalf, even if they were violated in a wrongful way, a male on their behalf would have to bring that case to the judge to have that case heard. So she had no right before the judge. She was a stranger to him. And society allowed the judge to offer her no obligation. There was nothing there. She did not have that to stand upon. She had no access to the judge. Not only was obligation eliminated by the standing of her being a widow, but she had no access to him. It didn't matter how long she waited, she never was going to be just called upon to come and to plead her case before the judge. She didn't have a friend in the court to get on the docket. What do I mean by that? Judges traveled. They went from town to town, city to city, And they went with an entourage, a group of people that traveled with them. And often the way cases were heard in that culture was that bribes were given to one of those entourage, and then the entourage would bring it to the judge's attention that this case needed to be heard. She had no ability to do that. She knew no one in the entourage. These individuals were responsible for the case flow that the judge was going to hear that day to keep it orderly and moving. And being poor as she was, she had nothing to offer as a bribe, which has been clearly stated and shown through history was the method in which most cases were heard in that culture. So she had nothing going for her whatsoever. So she took the tactic of the loudest wheels gets the grease, right? I'm just going to keep squawking until somebody hears me. A tactic that I believe many Americans have adopted. I'm just going to keep going until he finally listens to my case. And she asks for justice, which would indicate to me and I believe to others that she was in the right 
We don't know what her case was, but she felt that that case was strong enough to be brought before the judge and that she was going to win the decision. So this would have been in the minds of the disciples who were listening to this parable at that time. They would have known how helpless a widow is in that culture. They would have understand completely this scenario that Jesus is creating in this parable. But let us contrast that to with the fact of who we truly are as God's elect. We are not in a helpless state before God as children of God as the widow was in a helpless state before the judge. Let us understand that she was a stranger, but God has called us the children of God and knew us from the foundations of the world. Let me read these verses for you. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places even as He has chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, in which He has blessed us in the Beloved. We are not strangers to God. God knew us from the very foundations of the world and adopted us to allow us to become sons and daughters of the king. We are not strangers to God, as the widow was a stranger to the judge. Remember, she had no access to the judge, but you and I, as believers in Christ, we have full access to God. Hebrews 4, 14-16. Since then, he writes, we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He was without sin. Verse 16. Let us there with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. But not only do we have access, remember she didn't have a friend in the court, but we have an advocate in the court, in the person of Christ. An advocate, one who speaks on our behalf, one who stands before us and the Heavenly Father. As John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ Christ the righteous. And the Hebrew writer went on to tell us even further, therefore he had to be made a little like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." We have an advocate that understands our weaknesses and sympathize with us in the courtroom of God. It is the person of Jesus Christ. She was poor. She had nothing to offer as a, in a way of a bribe to this judge who would not hear her. But Philippians says we're rich in Christ. 
according to his grace. Listen to these words. And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. One must not miss this at all. That her only reason for being there, her only manner of justice was appealing to the legal system, but you and I do not enter into God's throne room on the basis of a legal system. We enter into God's throne room on the basis of grace. Superior in every way to the plight of this widow. We are not that widow before our God. That's the first thing that God wants us to understand from this parable. We are not in the same situation and plight as she is. So if then we represent, or I'm sorry, if we are in contrast to the widow, God therefore must be in contrast to the judge. And from the very beginning, we are told that this judge is a difficult character to say the least. Notice how he is described. He is described in verses 3 through 5. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him, that is the judge, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For while he refused, but after he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. In fact, Jesus told us his character, and now he is affirming his character, right? I don't fear God. I have no respect towards man. Meaning that he is nowhere close to where God would have him to be. Some have gone as far as to say, some scholars have gone as far as to say that this judge is actually a Gentile ruling over a Jewish widow, which would put her in a much more uh, greater position of disadvantage. There would be no regard for her whatsoever. But think of what Jesus said. The whole of the law is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. He's disregarding both of those in one swipe. I don't care about God. I don't care about people. Great judge to be in front of. This is not the guy you would want to sit in front of. As one wrote, he says, neither the laws of God nor public opinion can stir his conscience. Another one wrote, he said, he had no regard for God. He has no regard for man, but he has regard for himself. And all he cares about, his care is not for what pleases God. His care is not for what pleases men, but he cares a lot about what pleases him and what does not please him. Understand that the only reason that he finally um, allowed her to come before him was because he didn't want to be battered down, beaten down by her continual coming to him. In the Greek, this word is very interesting for beat down. It means to be given a black eye. And many believe that the judge was more concerned about his reputation than anything else and he did not want to be blackened He did not want his reputation to be dulled or to be um, hampered or hindered and harmed in any way by not listening to this woman who comes to him consistently. I mean, I see this woman following him from city to city to city, persistently trying to get his attention. He goes home at night, the phone rings. Listen, you got to hear my case. Oh, you know. 
He's driving his chariot and she's in the chariot behind him waving. Everywhere he goes, this persistence. And finally he gives in. Finally he gives in to her. As one wrote, he said this, and please understand, unless you see that Jesus is pointing out contrasts, you will get an idea that God must be argued or bribed into answering prayer. God is not like this, judge. For God is a loving Father who is attentive to our every cry, generous in His gifts concerning our needs, and ready to answer when we call. Here in our text, the only reason, again, the judge would help her was because she was willing to beat him down, give him a black eye, and he didn't want his reputation to be ruined. Now let us contrast that with our Heavenly Father. The judge has no reverence for the commands of God, nor does he pay any heed to the opinions or interests of his fellow man. Yet one states the Heavenly Father, however, is perfectly holy and just in everything and aims at the highest well-being of those who call on Him in prayer. One went on to make further contrasts, and let me read these to you. The judge was unfair, but God is always fair. The judge had no personal interest in the widow, but God loves and cares for those who petition Him. The judge answered the widow's cry out of pure self-interest, but God loves to bless His people for their good also. But let us understand what Jesus is overall trying to get to by giving us this illustration. The first thing we needed to do is understand this is a parable. It's in contrast, and we contrast that widow to God's elect, you and I. The unjust judge, the unrighteous judge, with the righteous God and Father in whom we have. Finding this parable here in this place requires us to look before and after it to truly help us understand all of the contextual implications that we must derive from it. Earlier on in chapter 17, we define that Jesus is discussing the coming of the kingdom of God. Preparing his disciples for that coming of the kingdom of God. But God knew that there was going to be a delay A long one, in fact, between his first and second coming. Jesus' first coming, he heralded that the kingdom of God is at hand. He went to the cross and rose on the third day, and the kingdom of God invisibly began to start here on the earth. But they were waiting for the full establishment of the kingdom of God. They were waiting for the justice that the implementation of the kingdom of God would bring to the Jewish people, and to themselves. But Jesus knew that as time went on, that they possibly would grow discouraged because those things weren't happening at a quick pace. It's been 2,000 years since the first coming of Jesus Christ. And God wants us to continue praying just as if we believe that it was going to be established tomorrow. He didn't want them to lose heart. He didn't want the delay to wear on them. To wear them down. Now specifically for the coming of the kingdom of God, but how many of our prayers do we often get discouraged and then therefore cease to, to pray for because of a delay in answering from God? 
I believe that principle can be brought down to that position. I think he was setting it here. Know the character of God. Know how God views you. And then understand in the wake of delay, it is not a delay of inactivity on God's behalf. But understand that that delay often represents God's preparation for him to answer the prayer in his timing and in his way. As one wrote, he said, How then do we explain delays and answers to prayer? Especially when Jesus said that God would avenge, as he did in Luke 18, 8. Remember that God's delays are not delays of inactivity, but of that of preparation. God is always answering prayer. Otherwise, a verse like Romans 8.28 uh, could not be in the Bible. God works in all things at all times, causing all things to work together to accomplish His purposes. So when delay has occurred, and that's what He is talking about, there's a long-term vision to this parable, and you see it very closely there at the end, don't you? Look with me in verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And again, here's the contrast, verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Meaning a delay of inactivity or indifference? The answer is a rhetorical no. I will tell you that he will give justice to them speedily. The word speedily there in the Greek can also mean soon. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's the question. In this period of delay, or period between the two comings of Christ, will we remain faithful in our prayer lives concerning the coming of the kingdom of God? Concerning his return? Meaning we know that once he returns, he will put all things right All injustice will be held accountable. You and I have a choice to make. Will we grow weary? Will we grow tired? Or will we remain faithful and to continue to pray and to petition God to continue to work as He is working? I often don't understand why God delays, but He does. I just sum it up this way. I'm a finite person trying to understand the wisdom of an infinite God, and that's a very difficult thing to do. I don't know why God had me seek Him and pray for 20-some years before my mom came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know why. But He did. And when she did, it was a glorious thing that He got all the glory for. Maybe you're praying for somebody to come to faith and that hasn't happened yet. Don't get discouraged. God is working. We don't know what that work's going to look like ultimately or how it's going to come to fruition, but we know and we are confident that God is working, is He not? And even though He may delay in the personal petition that you offer to Him, or more specifically as He's instructing the uh, disciples here at this moment coming off of the teaching that He gave them at the end of uh, Luke 17, about the coming of the kingdom of God, he knew that that delay was going to be difficult to weather. He knew beforehand. As it's been said, God often answers prayer, yes, nor, or wait. And wait always seems to be the hardest. You know, we, um, we are not a patient people here in the American culture, are we? 
In fact, most things are fueled by instant gratification. But God in His timing knows what He is doing. And when He does do it, it is perfect. This scoffing over the delay of Christ's return was something that the New Testament uh, writers wrote about. Peter anticipated this, and in his last letter before being martyred himself, Peter wrote this about God's delay. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's coming. But we're just not there yet. And yet we see God building His kingdom as each and every person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And the body's getting bigger. And God's doing great things in this time of delay. And yes, it has been 2,000 years And we can grow discouraged if we so choose to do because it's been so long. But let us trust the nature of the God in whom we serve. Let us trust in His view of us, His children. Again, submitting ourselves to His sovereignty, knowing that God knows best. And He will work out everything in the best way possible whatever that may be. And when I say the best way possible, I am saying that he's going to work out everything according to his perfect will. So as we wait for the coming of his kingdom and his justice, let us remember that God is at work. As we are waiting for him, he is preparing the way and the future of us all. Remember what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, He made everything beautiful in its time. Too often prayer becomes the last resort instead of the first resource that we draw to. I like what one commentator said as he ramped up to a quote from C.H. Spurgeon, Pastor David Gusick, one of my favorite pastors. He says this, Sometimes it does seem to us that God is reluctant to answer our prayers. Yet the delays in prayer are not needed to change God but to change us. Persistence in prayer brings a transforming element into our lives, building into us the character of God Himself. It is the way that God builds into us a heart that cares about the things the same way He does. I like what Spurgeon said, he said, Too many prayers are like boys running away knocks, given and then the giver is away before the door can be opened. They had ding-dong ditching in Spurgeon's day. Isn't that cool? Can you imagine ding-dong ditching Spurgeon's house? But he says too many of our prayers are like that. F.B. Myers went on to say, he says, if answers to certain prayers which we have offered in agony of tears are slow in coming we may be sure that the time is not ripe or that he is going to do something even better. I like what D.A. Carson said. 
He said, by itself, of course, this parable could be taken to meant that the longer and louder one prays, the more blessing one gets. A kind of tit-for-tat argument that Jesus himself elsewhere disavows. But this last verse of our text, verse 8, focuses the point. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The real problem, he states, is not with God's unwillingness to answer, but with our faithless and lethargic refusal to ask. And lastly, in this way, Jesus is warning about persistence in the face of wrong speak at all times, everywhere, to all, until the coming of the Son of Man, meaning this. We know that as Christians in this world, we will face injustice. We will be persecuted. Some will be martyred. And it appears that injustice reigns and has its way. And God says, no, when I come back, justice will be at hand with me. But until then, know what God is doing. God's delay is not slow in His coming of His promises. God's delay is the work of preparation. And in that preparation that you see his heart, he hopes that all will come to repentance. And that should be our heart also. Let us be persistent in prayer. Not badgering God because we think we have to to get his attention or to get our will done, but let us be persistent in knowing that he wants us to be faithful to the promises that he has made to us in his word and that we know for sure that one day he will return physically to this earth to set all things right. We all can be faithful over that promise. We know that he is going to return. So don't let the delay wear you down. Be persistent. Power through it. And be persistent in prayer.